evidence and answers. Do you know what you believe and why? These are essential questions that you should know in sharing your faith with others. Breaking down strongholds by sharing your testimony is something we are all capable of doing. Are you up for the challenge? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, we begin with message two, taken from the 2017 Apologetics Conference held in Hawaii. Each year, Pat hosts this conference and brings out the best scholars, teachers, and authors to share in teaching and equipping you, the believer, to be able to share your faith effectively in our culture today. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, here's our own host, Pat Zucran, with part two of his teaching entitled, Why I Am a Christian, Evidences for Faith. Here's what some of the top scientists are saying, many who don't necessarily hold to a theistic worldview. Dr. Robert Griffiths, the winner of the highest award given in the mathematical sciences, says this, if we need an atheist to debate, I go to the philosophy department. The physics department isn't much use. Agnostic and award-winning NASA scientist Robert Jastrow stated this in his book, God and the Astronomers. Once again, he's an agnostic. That means he doesn't know if God exists, all right? He says, for the scientists who's lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. I was talking to my cousin. He's a PhD in physics. He's the genius of our family. He's the guy that invented the laser tattoo removal device. Hey, so for all of you guys with tattoos that need to get it removed, he invented that device. And we were talking one day, and I said, tell me, how did we get the universe that we have? And he was kind of explaining to me, two atoms so dense they didn't take up any space, you know, exploded, and, and he's going on and on. And I said, all right, so you mean to tell me just exploded, and we got this incredibly complex, what appears to be a well-designed universe? And he said, yes. I said, well, it would be like saying a tornado came through a junkyard and left behind us a running, full, fully loaded 747. And he said, well, it's a little more than that. I said, really? He said, yeah, it'd be like a tornado came to a junkyard and left a fleet of 747s. I said, oh. I said, so you mean random natural cause exploded and we got this incredibly designed universe all by chance? And he said, yeah. I said, wow. I said, that's an incredible amount of faith you have. I said, I don't have that kind of faith. All right, when I see that, I... I that's why I believe in an intelligent creator. That's why I believe in God. I admire you for your faith. All right? I don't have that kind of faith. That's why I believe in a God. All right? So that's the design argument. Okay? Every design has a designer. And what we're discovering in the sciences, the more we discover, it's pointing to intelligent design. The fourth argument here is the moral argument. And it goes like this. Every law has a lawgiver. There is an absolute moral law that all human beings abide by. All right? Therefore, there's an absolute moral lawgiver. It comes from Romans chapter 2, where it talks about the law of God is written upon our hearts. 
We all have a moral law code embedded in our hearts. We just know that rape is wrong. We know that stealing is wrong. We know that murder is wrong. How do we know that? Well, we've got that embedded law code, and it's universal in cultures all over the world. Adultery is wrong in every culture. When something unjust happens to us, automatically we say, that's not right. We're pointing to an absolute standard of good from which we have departed. I was on a radio debate, and the other person was an atheist. And as we were talking, he said, my objection that God exists is because there's so much evil in the world. And I said, Luke, define evil for me. And he didn't want to. He said, well, you just know. I said, no, define it for him. What do you mean by evil? And he wouldn't. And I said, Luke, if you can't define evil, then how do you know what evil is? You know, and he just said, well, you just know. Everybody knows. The moderator in the studio, she jumped in and she said, Pat, why don't you define evil for us? And I said, the reason Luke doesn't want to give us the definition is because if something is objectively evil, then there's an absolute standard of good from which we have departed. Where did that absolute standard of good come from? You can't have a moral law without a moral lawgiver. C.S. Lewis, the man who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, came to Christ later in his life and became one of the great defenders of the Christian faith. And he said this, As an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? Man does not call a line crooked unless he has one idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust? Immanuel Kant, one of the great philosophers of modern time, didn't like a lot of the arguments for the existence of God, but he said this, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the oftener and more steadily we reflect on them, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. So you cannot have a moral law without a moral law giver. That universal moral law points to a God who is moral, who is just, who is righteous, and who is good, who has instilled that moral law within us. And the final evidence for the truth that affirms our faith in Christianity is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ claimed to be the divine Son of God and confirmed his claim to his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection. Now, the life of Christ is recorded for us in the New Testament. And time doesn't allow me to go into all the evidences, but what we have is a very accurate historical record of the life of Christ, written by eyewitnesses or their very close associates. All right? So it's not a legend because we can date the Gospels and the writings of the New Testament within 10 to 20 years of the life of Christ in many of those letters. It takes about 80 to 100 years for legends to develop. There's just too close enough, too many eyewitnesses who can confirm your accounts as true or false. Plus, we have over a dozen non-Christian or hostile witnesses. We can call you guys anti-Christian okay? historians, Jewish and Roman who affirm many of the events, people, and places of the New Testament. And we have hundreds of archaeological discoveries that confirm the historical accuracy of the New Testament. 
So in the New Testament, we have a very accurate historical record of the life of Christ, who made some astounding claims. He claimed to be the one and only unique divine Son of God, and he confirmed it through his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection. Jesus prophesied and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead. Well, when we study the resurrection, we take what we call the minimalist approach. And this comes from my good friend, Dr. Gary Habermas there at Liberty University. He did his PhD under a panel of atheist professors. And he said, you deny 80% of the Bible? Okay, I'll take the 20% we all agree on. And let's see if we can build a case for the resurrection here. All right, so this is called the minimalist approach. Here are the facts we're all agreed on. Okay? Whether you're atheist, uh, liberal, or evangelical Christian, we're all agreed on these facts. First, Jesus died by means of crucifixion. The New Testament, okay, which is a very accurate historical document, confirms the death of Christ by crucifixion. But not only that, we have non-Christian historical sources that confirm Christ's death by crucifixion. These non-Christian sources, Thales, Tacitus, Pliny, Celsus, Josephus, the Jewish Talmud, all affirm that Christ died by means of crucifixion. And that's the breakout session. There we go. Josephus here, in this brief paragraph here, actually summarizes the message of the gospel, that Christ was a real historical person. He lived a virtuous life that many believed that he was indeed the Messiah and that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and many believed he had risen from the dead. Tacitus, he's a very accurate Roman historian, and he writes this, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, but even in Rome. All right, A mischievous superstition. Okay? He calls Christianity in his ranks in, uh, as the source of evil or evil religion. Okay? This was not a guy who was friendly towards Christianity. He affirms that Christ was a historical person. He affirms characters like Pontius Pilate that Christ was crucified, and people thought he had risen from the dead. Here's an interesting artifact here. It's the Nazareth Decree, discovered in 1878. It was written by the Emperor Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54 AD. All right, so not too long after the life of Christ, he journeyed down to the land of Israel to investigate this man who claimed to be the divine Son of God and who there were claims that he had risen from the dead. After he visited Israel, he wrote down this Nazareth decree here, this plaque which was discovered. And this plaque essentially says that you are not to disturb any graves, all right, or remove any bodies or artifacts from any graves. Whoever does so will meet the death penalty. Now, that's very strange, okay? People tampered with graves a lot down there, but it's very strange that the emperor would make a decree there in the land of Israel that if you tamper with any grave, you will meet the penalty of death. What was the cause of that? Well, most likely, he went down there to Israel, heard about Jesus Christ, investigated all this, and then created the Nazareth decree. So Jesus died by means of crucifixion. In fact, the 
evidence is so compelling, two of the most liberal New Testament scholars who deny 80% of the Gospels as fiction say this. John Dominic Croissant says that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Bart Ehrman, once again, a man who denies the resurrection of Christ, says this. One of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on the orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. So Jesus died by means of crucifixion. Secondly, the tomb site was known and was found empty. All the gospel writers go out of their way to tell you where Jesus was buried. In the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man and a leader of the Jewish government. Now, it would be an absolute disaster for them to make up such a public, well-known figure and that be a fictitious figure. Because we could verify whether that person really existed or not. But they go out of their way to tell you where Jesus was buried. Not only that, we have what historians call the principle of embarrassment. When a journalist or historian is writing and they're willing to state embarrassing things about themselves, then we can reasonably conclude most likely what they're testifying about is indeed true when they're willing to admit embarrassing things about themselves. All right, and here, when it comes to the resurrection, we have the disciples, the men who were cowering in fear, in hiding, in fear of the Roman authorities, and it's only the women who were brave enough to be there at the crucifixion and then go visit the tomb of Jesus. Not only that, the testimony of women in Jewish culture wasn't held very highly. So why would you want them to be the first evangelists of the resurrection of Christ? The Talmud says this about women. Any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer. This is equivalent to saying that one who is rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. Pretty harsh, huh? Josephus writes this, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on the account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admired to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their soul. So the testimony of women was not held in high esteem in Jewish culture, yet the disciples were willing to admit these were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So the tomb site was known, was found empty. Then we have many resurrection appearances, right? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is an ancient creed we can date to within five years of the resurrection of Christ. States that over 500 saw the resurrected Christ. And we know psychological studies show 500 people do not have the same hallucination at the same time. And hallucinations occur to people who want to see that other person again or want that event to be true. Yet there were many disciples who were very skeptical, did not believe Christ had risen. Thomas was one of them, right? Who said, unless I see, I will not believe. Unless I see. Good title of a book. I want you to write a book with that title. So there are many resurrection appearances. Next, we have to transform lives of the disciples. What accounts for the fact that Just after a few days that their Lord was crucified, 
they were willing to go right back into the city of Jerusalem in the face of all the enemies who had just crucified Jesus. They're still there in places of authority. They're all still there. What would cause them to suddenly transform from cowardly men who are hiding and suddenly go right back into the city where the leaders who had crucified Christ are still there and go back and proclaim the message that, hey, the guy you crucified a couple weeks ago, he is the resurrected Messiah and the Lord of all creation. And he calls you to bow your knee and worship him. A message they knew that would cost them their lives and the lives of many who would choose to believe them. What caused that sudden transformation? Hey, history tells us men and women will not die for what they know to be a complete lie. And most men and women would not want to see their loved ones being tortured and persecuted unto death for a message they knew they were perpetrating was a complete lie. They won't. Hey, so what caused that sudden transformation of the disciples? Next, the preaching begins in the city of Jerusalem. That's the worst place to preach the resurrection. Why? That's where all the events occurred. If there never was a guy named Jesus who did all these miracles, who was crucified and his grave was found empty on the third... That's easy to verify right there in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you know, back then wasn't a very big city. All right? If I was telling you about uh, Elvis and his grave was found empty, it's kind of hard for us in Hawaii to go over there to Tennessee and find out if that really happened. But if I tell you about some famous guy here in Hawaii, he died and his grave is found empty. We think he rose from the dead. And his grave is right up there in Nu'uanu. Well, most of us would go there and check it out. All right, It's not that hard to verify. They're preaching in Jerusalem. This is where all these events took place. Their testimony could easily be verified. Legends can take root in faraway lands, but these guys began preaching right in the place where all this happened. How could that message survive beginning right there in Jerusalem? Next, the preaching of the resurrection begins very early. This creed we find in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we can date to within five years of the resurrection. Most of the New Testament is written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. All right, It takes about 80 to 100 years for legends to develop. Why is that? Well, all the eyewitnesses who can verify your accounts have to die and pass on from the scene. All right, But the resurrection begins in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. It could not have survived had it not been true. All right, take for example, let's just say, hey, I have written the most accurate biography of the life of John F. Kennedy, okay? And I'm claiming my biography is by far the most accurate ever written. And I go to the city of Dallas, and I said, three days after JFK got shot, he rose from the dead from Parkland Hospital there. Numerous doctors saw him and were amazed. The nurses saw him and were amazed. And he preached at Prestonwood Baptist, a church of 15,000 people. And he preached at other churches. And he preached at City Hall. And hundreds of people saw him. And then he arose and went to heaven. All right? Now, if I went to Dallas today, what, 60? 60 years after the event of Kennedy's death, even 60 years later, I began trying to push my biography there in Dallas as the most accurate historical record of the life of JFK, 
how long would my biography last there in Dallas? Probably not even half a day till I'd be laughed out of the city. Yet the disciples, just days after, began preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How could that message have lasted in the face of those eyewitnesses? And finally, the preaching begins early, and you have skeptics like James, the half-brother of Jesus, and Paul, who is an enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Thomas, who was a skeptic, who said, show me the facts, man, or else I'm not going to believe. How is it that these men came to believe in Jesus Christ as a resurrected Messiah and Lord of all creation? So those are the minimal facts here that we're all agreed upon. What is the best, most reasonable explanation for these facts? Well, over centuries, people have tried to give alternative explanations to the resurrection, and all of them have failed. All of them have failed. The most reasonable conclusion is that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. Now, if Jesus has risen from the dead, then it makes all the difference in the world. First of all, God exists, and he has designed a universe and each one here for a purpose. There is meaning for our existence. There is a mission for which God has designed each one of us, for each one of us to discover and to fulfill. We live in a just universe, which one day evil will be judged, Righteousness and justice shall triumph. Second, the meaning of our lives is rooted in a relationship with God, and he has made that possible through his Son, Jesus Christ. And God has created us to know him and to discover and fulfill the mission for which we were created. Next, since Jesus is the Son of God, all that he taught is true. Any teaching contrary to what Christ taught would ultimately be false. And Christ taught that the Old Testament is the word of God directly, and he affirmed the authority and inspiration of the New Testament indirectly. So Jesus affirms that the Bible is indeed the divinely inspired word of God. Next, death is not the end. The grave has been conquered, and the hope of eternal life is now found in Jesus Christ alone. And eternal life comes through knowing Christ and Christ alone who said, I am the resurrection, I am the life, I am the source and creator of life. Anyone who believes in me shall never die. And he confirmed that through his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection. Right? So these are some of the evidences of how we know our faith in Christ is indeed true. Now, maybe for some of you here, maybe this is the first time you've heard there's evidence for faith in Christ. Maybe some of you here okay, have come seeking to say, is there any substance to this Christian stuff? Well, if you want to learn more, I went over this very quickly, okay, but here's a, here's a great book I hope you would find very helpful if you want to do further study in the things that we have covered and more. But as I did the research, I came to discover that indeed our faith in Christ is not a blind leap in the dark. 
we just believe even though the evidence isn't there. We believe because of the powerful and compelling evidence that is there, that indeed God exists. Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God who lived a miraculous life, died, and rose again. And the evidence is quite compelling. And that is why I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, books, and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and of course your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Hey, 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 hey.